Good morning, uh, Ante. It's the end of the week. This time it's the end of, for me, it's the end of the first term of the summer semester. How is it for you? Oh, I'm only teaching in the first session, so I finished my class. And uh, I think for you, it's just the first step, right? You have another session coming up. And that's right. Yeah, Hebrew one, and now Hebrew two is following. So, how was how was the class? Were you satisfied with the students? I was. I love teaching in the summer. I don't know if I mentioned that before. I don't know. It's somehow, you know, we, we have these intenses where we meet every day, and there are advantages and disadvantages. And I find if students are not taking too many classes, if they're taking two or three classes, it is too much. They cannot absorb the material. But if they have the luxury of taking only one class. Actually, the rhythm of meeting every day, rather yeah. than having lectures once a week and having many other things going on in their lives, might actually aid in absorption and focus. So I actually enjoy very much teaching in those settings. Like one week intensives are too intense for me, but one month intensives, they actually mm -hmm. end up working well. How about you? Uh, you know, that um, observation that you are making is actually, uh, it's a statistical truth. At least we in the Old Testament department, we have run the metrics uh, and seen how many people are able to pass Hebrew courses in a normal semester and how many are able to pass in an intensive course in the summer. And it's more people who pass actually in intensive for the same reasons that you're mentioning. So people, they, don't, they are not allowed to take any other courses. You meet every day three hours, right? And then they have to study for three, four more hours. And just this constant absorption of material puts you into a real strong frame of mind where your mind is not allowing itself to be disrupted, distorted by other stimuli. So it seems to work for most, not for all, but for most students, actually, it, it works well. And you see this in the success rates. Yeah, so I'm wondering, I'm coming back to our earlier discussion about focus and concentration. And you said that the Hebrew class, the intensive Hebrew class is almost a, a cognitive gym, sort of cognitive calisthenics mm -hmm. going on where people after a week or two suddenly discover some new powers of concentration focus. Did that happen this time around? Did you see that, that switch taking place? Yeah, yeah, the switch took place. And, you know, I'm so proud of my students. I just submitted, just before we met, uh, I submitted um, my final grades for Hebrew 1. And I didn't have a single student who dropped or who, 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 didn't, uh, who, who failed. No single student who failed, all passed. I never had that. So I'm teaching here now since, what is it, since nine years. And always I have a dropout fail rate of about 25 to 30% hmm. of the class. And I just had two students drop. Uh, I advised them to, to drop because I think they wouldn't have not have made it. And indeed, they, they dropped. But the rest all remained in the class, all passed. And I'm, I'm super excited. I never had that before. So I'm really proud of my students. Well, congratulations and congratulations to you as well. You're an amazing instructor. So that is also uh, kudos to you. I'm very happy for that. Well, Ante, uh, you know, we actually talked about the topic we want to talk about today, Mother's Day. Uh, already a couple of weeks ago, we wanted to have that as a potential topic for our last session, but then we did the debriefing of the uh, Squamish experience. And so we thought, okay, now we, we should tackle the Mother's Day topic. Um, it was on the radar. It was in the minds of many people. How many weeks ago? I think that's like four weeks ago. Fourth, yes, three, yeah, four weeks May, ago yes. when Mother's mm -hmm. Day was, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such an important topic because it's 
perhaps our first love. Some frame it as our first love, right? Um, our mother. And we want to dedicate this topic on mothers and particular mother's day. And my question to you here would be kind of as a starter. Did you celebrate mother's day at home? I, I know you had a, a complicated uh, family situation, but w did mother's day play a role in, in your life? It did not. I don't remember. We did not have that holiday, as a matter of fact. We had a Women's Day, uh, March 8, International Women's Day, growing up in a, in a socialist country. So that was really very much emphasized. But not really Mother's Day. That was not really a thing. So no, I did not grow up with that holiday. How about you? <laughs> yeah, so Mother's Day is a big uh, celebration day, actually, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And it has... It has some awkward backgrounds too. Obviously, it's a um, it's a day that was invented in America, 1907. Mm -hmm. uh, Mother's Day was an invented uh, and has then introduced itself into the culture, into the American culture, and then it quickly swapped over to the European continent. But in uh, National Socialism, actually, Mother's Day really rose as a major yes, yes. Um, a day of, of celebration with, of course, now looking back, back with with ideological underpinnings, right? The, the yeah. German mother who um, guarantees the future of the Aryan tribe. Um, yes. And it was, it was part of a very strong, defined role that a woman was supposed to play in order to be a good Aryan human being. So it, it has these weird underpinnings, but I, th I think we have cleansed Of this type of layer to the interpretation of Mother's Day in Germany, uh, at least when I grew up, I didn't feel these things anymore. But it still is a very strong, important uh, holiday in Germany. We didn't really celebrate it that much at home. That's just because we as a family are not a very celebrate, celebrative, you know, celebrative family. So we usually don't do birthdays and, and uh, mother days and father days. And so uh, not because we have something against them. It, it just we'd rather go out and do something and then celebrate a certain type of phenomenon. Right. So I know that you brought up this topic and we decided just to go back a little bit. Uh, yeah. We actually wanted to do it for Mother's Day. But then, you know, our planning was a little, went a little bit awry. We were not timely. We didn't do it in a timely fashion. So we said okay, let's do it, and this will be kind of interesting. This will be ready for the, uh, the Father's Day. And so having mothers, talking about mothers in light of Father's Day, because I'm sure, as we will discuss, our experiences with our mothers and uh, mm -hmm. very much also is de uh, determined by the kind of fathers we had in life. But we can come to that a little bit later. But I'm, I'm wondering, why is it, why did you feel that you wanted to talk about mothers and not just Mother's Day, but mothers in particular. Uh, perhaps you can give us a little bit of a background story why yeah. that is so important to you. I think it's important, particularly getting more important as I grow older and reflect my own parents and how they contributed to my own life and realizing what a major factor my mom played and her mom, actually the mother's line, so, so to say. My grandma Tosi and then uh, my mother Ingrid There, there is a strong imprint of, of women uh, in my life, um, both uh, with regard to my thinking, with regard to my attitudes towards life. And I think often we don't, we don't acknowledge that. I think it's not just for me personally. I think it's a general phenomenon that mothers are the basic fact. 
mothers are the first love in in, in a sense um, mothers are for the first 12 years for sure the person you relate to the person that makes you feel safe and kind of this awareness has grown in me uh, as i grow older as i said but it also grew from two other sources of experiences the one is of obviously i'm married and and having a mother in the house living with a mother in the house i just i'm just so humbled by by the by the sheer mental physical social capabilities that that i'm observing every day i'm 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 not exaggerating i'm 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 not able to play on that level. So th this is next level humanity So to, to me. And I, I think it needs to be acknowledged. Often in the public discourse, we speak about the heroes, right? And they are usually masculine. And and I, I, I've been quite disillusioned about that. Just living with my wife and with the mother of this house for for now, yeah, for now 15 years, I'm, I'm daily ashamed uh, of my psychic shortcomings, um, my, my social shortcomings. Um, my physical shortcomings. Um, we, we can go a little bit more into details, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But so that's the second source that makes me want to talk about it. And the third one is a religious one. And that is whenever I meet my parents uh, and stay with my parents in Bavaria, it's a very Catholic area. Uh, and obviously, when I do run my morning runs uh, or other sportive activities in, in the territory, you, you always encounter these little merry chapels, you know, these little in Bavaria, kind of on each hill or uh, on, on these nice uh, mountain paths. There are these little chapels where you see Mary um, and you can pray to her. And uh, obviously in the Catholic environment, Mary is an is a important uh, figure, if not the most important figure when it comes to relatability. And it just made me realize, yes, there is an advantage in the sense that Catholicism has over Protestantism. They have a mother figure. And and I think it's so much more easy to relate for many to a mother. And usually when, when Mary is portrayed, right, she has this baby in her hands. She's like this, this super sovereign lady that has so much emotions in, in, in her. Um, you feel welcomed. You feel at home. You feel like... Uh, in, in your hands, I'm safe. And you can speak to the Father, right? And I mean, this is part of the theology too. So that is a third source that made me realize, yes, even the society, the religious society, longs and needs the mother and, and shows how important mothers are. Yeah. For me, it's, and perhaps this is, uh, we can talk perhaps a little bit about our own experiences, specific experiences we had with our mothers. And I don't want to spoil any of that, but perhaps just slightly uh, problematizing this topic. Because mm -hmm. when we think about mothers, both on a conceptual level and then also experiential level, first a conceptual level, when we, when we think about motherhood and mothers, we actually have a jostling of competing archetypes when we think about this. We have the archetype of the caring mother, the womb of life, the mm -hmm. hand that prote protects a chicken under all possible circumstances the nurturing, the life-giving aspect of it, the sacrifice of it. I mean, the symbiotic relationship we had with this human being, uh, all of us in the womb, so much so that a lot of our experiences, as Freud said, right, is, is actually trying to recapture this symbiotic relationship, so much so that even religion for him is kind of a type of infantile regression, this kind of uh, yeah, recapturing yeah. the oceanic feeling that we had while being in, in mother's womb. So we have that archetype. But there's also the archetype of the mother as the unrelenting, smothering presence. 
who with her love and her care just smothers the children and doesn't mm -hmm. allow for spaces of decision making that you can never really become independent because the mother in her care knowing what is best for you out of her love everything that she's fighting against is you making these these decisions so we can see this and you have this in literature uh, right very much i'm yep. thinking of miss bennett in uh, jane austen's pride and prejudice prejudice who tries to manipulate her child to get married well so she can benefit and mm -hmm, in madame mm -hmm. bovary for sure as well the way she commits suicide and leaves her child behind who gets then adopted so this is kind of in terms of archetypes, but also in the experiences. You talked about how you, from very early on, you felt this connection. We feel this connection, but that is not the experience of everyone. And mm -hmm. I want this to, for our listeners, to let them know that we are aware of that, of course. I know people in my life who have been abandoned by their mothers, or who their mothers, you know, were even consuming alcohol while they were pregnant, or who were on drugs, yeah. or who abandoned them. And it is these traumatizing aspects that are staying with them. So I think that when we talk about motherhood, we should kind of navigate this important kind of space of profound gratitude uh, that we have, but also a type of realism that prevents us from approaching this topic in a sentimentalized, sentimentalized way, where we yeah. deny these stark realities and the angular aspects of human existence, which is all too true for yeah. many people. So anyway, that is just for me. I wanted to, not to mention some of the feminist critiques to which we can sure, come sure. later on, but but perhaps before we go to these kind of potential negative aspects, why don't you just tell me like a good experience with your mother from your childhood that kind of, that you still remember and that you think really shaped you in some positive way. Oh yeah, I can tell you a story. I can tell you a story. I mean, I can tell you many stories, but one that also actually tell in uh, my Old Testament theology class uh, is I think exemplar for my, exemplatory for my, uh, for my mother. So imagine... You are having to move in your childhood every six years. So you are moving from one um, state to another state in Germany. Education is a state matter. So the way how schools are run in Bavaria is different than they are run in Baden-Württemberg or Saxony. And in this particular case, we moved to Rheinland-Pfalz. It's a state uh, around the Rhine River. And uh, they were more advanced in mathematics when I entered uh, high school there, but less advanced in philosophy and literature. So I, I had to struggle quite a bit uh, on the mathematical front. And so my parents, they pay tutoring so that I kind of can catch up. I had a great tutor, um, but somehow I, I just didn't like mathematics or that part of mathematics. It was algebra and it didn't, I, I just didn't invest much, even though my parents invested uh, into it. And so there, the half-year report came in December, just before Christmas. You get your half-year report in Germany. And of course, you're supposed to share it with your parents and they have to sign it. And uh, then you return it after the vacation. And so I'm getting my uh, half-year report. And sure, mathematics, the number was five. And you know, in Germany, you have one till six. So one is the best. Six is a straight F. If you have, I think, two fives or three fives in the, what is it, perhaps 10 subjects that you're taking, you have to repeat the entire class. And so I was heading to, towards um, towards a repeating of, of classes. Um, and, and just so that people yeah. know, not just a class, it's the entire year. 
Yeah, not just yeah. the subject. You have to go back the whole year again. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I remember my father picked me up on the day where I received the uh, half year report. Usually I bicycle, uh, I cycled home, but in this case, sometimes Daddy visited some uh, members of the church on the route, and then he would pick me up. So in that case, he picked me up, and he, of course, was asking, "Did you get the report?" And I said, "No, I didn't get the report. Um, it's probably by the end of the week, or perhaps next week." So, okay, okay, good. So I come home, mom asks, and did you get the report? And I, no, this this time it's later. Okay, well, then the next day comes and the end of the week comes. And of course, I still had to explain, yeah, this time, I don't know what's happening at school, but <laughs> they're very late with the reports this time. So, and I was just thinking, man, I can't, the vacation is coming, right? One more week and then Christmas vacation starts and it's always before the Christmas vacation. We have to share oh, where you get the half year report. And so I think, okay, I need to fix this. I'm going to take a, a, a eraser and erase the five, uh, you know, with these rubber erasers, erase the five, and then I just put a three or something in there, like a C minus. And well, that's what I did. Uh, I erased it and I took my ink, ink pen because everything back then was written with ink, right? Um, also, the students had to write with ink pens. So, and I put the three in there. And of course you can imagine what happened. The, the, the paper is literally roughed up Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the ink basically was not a three. It was just a dot <laughs> that I left behind. And then I thought, okay, now the catastrophe is just unpreventable. So I went, it, it, I re still remember it was an evening. It was dark outside already. I go to the kitchen, mom is in the kitchen doing the dishes or doing some stuff, stuff there. And I said, well, mom, uh, I finally got my, my report. And I put it on the table, didn't say anything. She looks at the report and, of course, mom's eagle eyes directly see what the issue is. And she, oh, oh great, thank you. So she grabbed the report, put it on the stove, turned the stove on and continued doing the dishes. I think, what's going on? And, of course, at a certain moment, the paper gets brownish and a little, oh, little smoke oh. comes <laughs> up. And the mom, mom, the report is burning and she jumps to the report, picks and oh, shoot, it's always mommy forgets these things. So and so I guess then mommy needs to make an appointment with the teacher to get a new one. And I didn't say anything. I just thought, what's going on? So and of course, she made an appointment with the teacher and went there, got a new report said, I'm so sorry, you know, in the business of of motherhood things happen and i just didn't i just didn't look at it and there we go um so yeah, no problem mrs glanz you know we we print out a new report for you and so we got the new report and there of course was the five and then mom come, came back and she was angry so she i mean she never yelled and also in this case she didn't yell but but you clearly uh, saw she she was in an emotional state that was not comfortable to her and so it also did not make me comfortable because i thought okay now i'm you know now i'm going to get get the punishment but what she was actually saying is i'm so disappointed in you not about the great disappointed in you that you were afraid of me hmm. so as long as i am your mother you can always come home mm -hmm. and as long as i'm your mother i don't care about your performance you will be my beloved son so yeah, and that, that kind of was her anger and she expressed this in a couple of you know uh, tropes and uh, that made me realize my mom is always on my side mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter what she's always on my side right and guess what in the second half of the year i got a straight a in mathematics because and i think there was some psychology happening it also was a different topic it was not algebra it was geometry but i think there are a couple of components that made me perform on an a level namely the first one I think was I learned 
without fear of failure. I knew I, there was nothing I, I can lose. Right. So I can only win. And right. even if I have to repeat the entire class, nobody is against me. So, yes. And I think that motivated me to actually get focused on the actual object of learning rather than the side effects of, of it. And that's due to a great extent to the, to the right. constitution of my mom. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful, a beautiful story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. You know, when I think about my mom and you know, our life situation was uh, very different. And I actually, when I think about these three basic phases of my childhood, that each of these phases brought out a different mother-son relationship, and not simply because of the age and growing up, but of circumstances. So the first 10 years, as I've mentioned in our show before, I I grew up in Germany, so we were together as a family. And I mentioned also a little bit how my father was quite a strict and sometimes violent man. He was responsible, he was caring, he did not abandon his family, but it was a very strict uh, household mm -hmm. with a lot of physical punishment as well. And during that time, I remember my mom and when my dad would you know, take a belt uh, to beat me, he would just jump in between us uh, to protect me. And she, he would hit her and she was mm. so with her body, she was uh, protecting me. So that's definitely something that stayed with me in those early years. And then later when we moved to Yugoslavia in 1980 and my dad stayed behind, so suddenly now I am alone with my mom. And that created some very dynamics, uh, very, it's very, you know, it's, it's very interesting. We can talk about like what it does to, to boys when they're left without a father, only a mother, because oh, yeah. then the mother is a very different person than if you have a supporting and caring father in the family who is doing his part of raising the child and instilling certain sense of worth and strength and, and, and dignity and capabilities with working with your hands and all of that. Yeah, and when particular that is, for boys. Especially for boys, right? Especially if, if it's a, a father you look up to. And, and I totally realized that whatever my mom was doing, she could not feel that presence. She simply could not. And, and especially a boy like me who was extremely active in, in sports, always outside, who would have benefited from a father who was very athletic, mm -hmm. extremely capable. Like my, my father, he can, from fixing cars to building houses, to, I mean, he's like an engineer. He can do almost anything. I could have learned so much yeah. but, you know, if he was present. And then the, the third phase is was, well, when we, after a couple of years, then became Seventh-day Adventists. And then when my mom became this towering spiritual presence in my life, which she is until today. So it's, it's very interesting, therefore, how these relationships that we have with our parents how they are profoundly impacted by these factors like who is the other who is the other uh, parent where is he or she uh, what contribution does she have and also something just to conclude a follow-up that we as our we have this group that we mentioned before a human flourishing group where we talk about different issues on a monthly basis and yesterday you had this we had this discussion on trauma you know when i think about mom who came from just just a history of trauma Hmm. And that kind of generational impact that had, you know, I mean, my uncle, uh, you know, he was older, she was a baby, so I don't think she remembers that. But he basically, when the Italians uh, were bombing the village in Dalmatia in, in Croatia, he ran out of the house and the bomb literally fell on him in, in my hmm. 
grandma saw that and that actually his name was Ante and that's why I'm named hmm. Ante after this boy who was who was killed so this is a young woman my grandma who married very young had three children her husband was killed in second world war she becomes incredibly sick and now here, here is my mom right without a father yeah. figure without resources struggling yeah. and a lot of these generational traumas uh, you know, I also experienced that in relationship with my mom. So I'm going a little bit all over the place simply to make the point how it, we can talk about relationships to our mothers to, to our mothers in a typological sense, right? This, sure. In this archetypal sense. But I would say that everyone has such different experiences with all of these factors that determine these relationships. Yeah. But, you know, while there are these different experiences, I think there is just kind of phenomenologically still a basic fact and that is for the major for the vast majority of any human population it is the mother who is at the core of society whether she wants or not yeah sure so because sure. she brings birth to to children sure. and she is often the one that is most sure. responsible so independent of the social strata we, we, you're talking uh, about it's there's a significant responsibility on on the mother and i think it's often this might be the feminist uh, feminist critique here, but uh, it, it's often overlooked in, in the daily life. It's not appreciated. It's not just a modern phenomenon. Obviously, it goes through, throughout history. When you think about, just talked you know, a couple of months ago with Karen, with my wife about it. If you look at the high society of the Greek city-state, I mean, a hero like Odysseus, they usually have three women relations, right? They, they have their wife, like, like Penelope, a wife that is basically the head of the household while the man is in war or on adventures um, or philosophizing she is actually the foundation of the house so she's the mother of the kids she is taking care of the economy of the house we know this actually from the text reports uh, from of the romans that especially the roman empire Egypt, exactly yeah yes. uh, of the yeah. roman empire yeah. that uh, the, the text reports in egypt are very well preserved because of the weather situation there that uh, I think 60% of the yes. revenue was actually done by women. Yes. So they yes. ran the farms, they mm -hmm. ran uh, the, the big companies. Um, so the, the, the mother has this, this um, the mother house, the household function, that's the wife. Then the second is the hetere, right? And that is the, the lady that's responsible for satisfying their romantic needs, the romantic and erotic needs, so to say, of, of a husband. So this uh, Odysseus would go with a hetere to a feast, right? Or uh, even to the symposium. That's, that's where you bring the hetere and you're not bringing your wife. She's the one that basically satisfies all the romantic um, uh, projections that you might want to throw into, into the sky. That's what she is doing. And it's a proud, actually proud role of a hetere. And they, they have a certain type of rope that they're wearing. Everybody identifies as, okay, this is the hetere of this or that uh, guy. And then third, of course, you have the prostitution. So the, the young, beautiful-looking girls that, uh, that would satisfy, satisfy the sexual needs of a, of a man. Again, we're speaking, of course, of high society. But if you think about it, these are also archetypes. So these are three types of archetypes that in a um, modern romanticized version of the woman are all to be combined in one woman. I mean, this is a task. This is a super task mm -hmm. that... The, the Greeks would say we have solved it by splitting it among three <laughs> yeah. types of, of because women, that one right? person can do it all, so we have to e e exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, 
if you look at the Judeo-Christian worldview and, and how the man-woman relationship is described, what a challenge to a woman. I mean, yes, it can be a blessing, I, I guess, but how much of a curse can this become, particularly if you are connected perhaps to a wrong husband? To satisfy all these three needs, that's that's almost impossible. Just think of you yourself, if you ever, as, as, as Ante or as Oliver or as a man, would have to satisfy these three things. You need to be the poet, right? You need to entertain, you, you, you need to do the massage, massages, you need to do the pep talk. So then you need to run the finances and you need to do the education of your kids and you need to make sure that you know their grades in school are good and that you connect with, with the teachers and and that you do the what is it the co-curricular co stuff and that you buy the right clothes and that you make the appointments with the doctor so and then the third thing that of course you satisfy not just the emotional and, and social needs but also the physical needs how do you want to manage that and on top on top of this of course you do your work you you're a professor i think none of us does this because we're mm -hmm. just not capable of doing it but many women um I would say most women are living such a life, combining mm -hmm. all these aspects. So um, when you think about your um, mother, what type of roles or what type of archetypes did she have to fulfill? I know at a certain moment, your, your daddy was out of the picture for a while. So was that easier for her then to live as a woman or was it, was it even more challenging? Well, it was a difficult situation. On the one hand, there was a sense of perhaps relief, not being under the pressure of my father, because my father, in many ways, I don't want to diagnose my father. I respect my father. He has sacrificed a lot. And I, it's a little bit difficult to discuss this topic when your parents are still alive and, and you want to honor them properly. So I don't want to go too much in, yeah. into details. But a difficult man that he was, it was... Uh, my mom could never really satisfy her role. I mean, she would be perhaps, you know, we had we have to go to a trip, let's say at at nine o'clock, and, and she would get get up very early to make everything ready, and everything would be ready, right? She would she would cook, prepare, pack. Uh, you know, and my dad would suddenly just okay, let's go, let's go. Oh my, yeah, and that's then, the and, same. Yeah, and then and. And however you are prepared, you were never, ever ready. You were never, ever yeah. good enough. And there was a lot of, quite a bit of humiliation going on as well because my father is better educated and, and he would use that knowledge sometimes even to kind of humiliate my, my mom. So I think when we were alone, it was a sense of relief, but also it was not easy for a single mother. And there is now another person now is coming into my life and that is my maternal grandmother who uh, stayed with us uh, for a good portion of the year who was a incredibly strong person survival i mean her story oh, it is just um, um what she went through in life is unbelievable so i'm now surrounded not with two mother one mothers but with two mothers and they were 
I can say in terms of how they brought us up, I mean, we, we had discipline, we had everything was organized, everything was great. And so it was this very strange uh, relationship. On the one hand, my dad was missed. We would see him once a month. He would come for a weekend. Uh, you know, he lived in Ingolstadt. So this was about mm -hmm. seven, eight hours drive. He would come late Friday night to leave on Sunday. And when he would leave, you know, I would feel a strange combination of sadness and happiness. Uh, but especially later on when my mom and we became Adventists, we were, we were baptized, uh, we were together, we were... You know, it was a, an especially precious moment uh, for us. And, and suddenly she becomes this woman, this amazing woman of prayer. And it is, and now we can talk, I'm talking more about contemporary times. Yeah. You know, knowing that there's this one person who not just prays, I mean, she's a woman who prays, I don't know, for at least an hour, for a long time. She has this very deep relationship with God and that she's praying with her whole heart for me. I cannot even imagine the day when she won't be around. Uh, it's going to be just an unbelievable loss in that sense because mm -hmm. I know there's always every single day there's one person in this world who is praying for me, uh, uh, God's protection, God's guidance. There's almost like a spiritual aura around me. I believe that I cannot see the mantle of sort of spiritual protection that she puts upon me by, by praying for me. And this means a lot. So even when I've faced, when I faced, used to face moments of prayerlessness and even rebellions, uh, rebellion against God, yeah. I almost prayed by proxy through my mom, right? She, she's oh, the yeah. one who took oh, yeah. upon the praying. And that is something that I can never, I mean, I am so profoundly uh, in awe of her and uh, grateful to everything she has done in that regard. Were it not for the prayers of our mothers. Huh? Yes. yes. Yeah. One, one thing that triggered me um, was this constant, you're describing this constant sense of feeling of not being good enough, right? Not fulfilling the requirements. I think this is a sense that also my wife and for sure my, my mom had too. Um, when you were describing kind of getting ready for going on vacation or going somewhere and, you know, moms are prepping everything and doing the cooking and cleaning the house so, so that you can leave for a week or so. And uh, and daddy complaining, why is it taking so long? You know, we, we are already behind. And I, I have uh, the same experiences too. And I always felt so in pain for my mother because I thought, daddy, don't you see? Mom is running like crazy. Mom is doing everything. And you're just sitting in the car waiting. <laughs> um, so, it, yeah, it, that was... I, I felt for the majority yeah. of my young life, I would say all the way up till about 30, I felt much stronger loyalty towards my mother than to my father. But that has changed as I grew older. So uh, it's uh, I really my appreciation for my father grew grew for, for different reasons, but we can talk about that perhaps at a different moment. But what I would like to focus on a bit more is that this constant sense of not being good enough. I, I think we cannot compare from a male perspective how how much of a suffering a woman often undergoes because there's so many things particularly in a modern neoliberal capitalistic world you know the, the mom is not just there for cooking so, so to say if you take kind of a standard traditional view but it's also the one who needs to be the beauty queen you know who who, who cannot be overweight um who, who needs to show herself as the beauty i mean what a stress so then she needs to be the one who has the best kids 
in town, right? You know, whose kids can read already long before all the other kids can read and who is doing well in school and who is playing three, four music instruments. The strong stress on performance. You are only a good mom if you're also the greatest teacher in town and if you're also you know, the, walking the, the catwalk uh, gr greatly. And also, if you if you manage your uh, physical health situation well, and of course, in a religious religious environment in which we are living here, who is a spiritual fountain or a spiritual pillar, uh, how how do you want to combine all these things? I mean, in reality, what happens is the mother wants a child, and if it has a child. And if it can get the child, because that's all things that are in the stars, you don't know what, what's going to happen. But when a child is there, basically all fronts are being torpedoed and are being destabilized. So, I mean, Karen didn't have a spiritual life for probably the last, for much of the last 10 years. Well, it's not because she's not a spiritual person. I mean, of course, she has a spiritual life, but not in the, in the, in the way she would have liked. I mean, you, if you want to do worship, you need to wake up at four o'clock yeah. because at five o'clock in the morning you run the kitchen you run the prep you run the you know, homework checks you, you run yeah. uh, clothes you run and all these kind of things uh, and i'm trying to assist as much as i can but uh, you know doing laundry and, and doing cooking once in a while and, and doing the dishes for sure so but still there's so much more still on the on the table where do you want to get the time from and i think this is often is just going under the radar. It's assumed by culture that this is just being yes. dealt with by women and that's their task. But yes. the huge emotional losses that yes. come with that yes. is, is tremendous. Yes, yes. I mean, I am, as you, I'm absolutely f fascinated at the energy and endurance and the stamina that women have and that mothers have. I'm absolutely in, in awe, you know, and I'm thinking if I had to do all of that, <laughs> you know, I, it is amazing. And there's never complaining. It's, it's just being done. And I think when you really, I think I'm really touched by what you're saying. It's not even so much that you don't have time for yourself, but it's almost like an erasure of yourself going on. It's almost yep. like a kenosis, almost like a self-emptying, where actually all of these qualities that you have that could be actualized, your creative capacities, like if a, a, a woman likes to play or paint or whatever it is, or likes to read, like for a good portion of your life, this might just be, just not be there. And you might not ever able, might not be able ever to catch up on that. And I think it is quite important that we keep that in mind when we're reading some of these, even some radical feminist literature that mm -hmm. is very critical of, of motherhood as almost parasitic on a person's capacity for freedom and self-actualization. Because if you don't keep that in mind, all of these critiques might come across, these feminist critiques, as profoundly narcissistic. Oh, you know, I cannot realize myself. I don't have time for myself because being a mother, uh, come on, why are you complaining? Right? You, um, that could be one response right. that you have. And, and certainly there is a problematic deconstruction of family and motherhood that is going on for various ideological, philosophical, political reasons, which is a different topic. But, but once you understand how much it takes to be a mother and a wife, a lot of these critiques begin to make more sense. And certainly we can give them quite a bit of credence in that regard. I wonder what is your take on that? Yeah, if, if you don't have empathy or if you cannot imagine to some extent the life of a woman, 
you will have difficulties with a feminist critique, I think. Yeah. But if once you are exposed to the inner life of a woman, it just falls into place. If you, if you think, Karen, when we came here, uh, we had two little girls that we brought into, into this uh, world. Well, what does that mean? It means you're socially isolated, right? I mean, you, you will lose friends because friends and quality time with friends requires time. You don't have that time anymore. You're sticking with, with two little, little uh, children. Um, professional life, like you're describing, you cannot continue professional life, at least not on the level you want it. In the Netherlands, uh, it's much more supported that women can continue their work. Um, you, you have daycare and things like this. Uh, Karen could just continue even after like two or three weeks after giving birth. She could work again, which was so important for her as a being because she felt like she is more than just a mom. Well, of course, the word just is loaded, but you have many women, I would say even the majority of, of women, who are like any human being in need of a social environment, in need of feedback, in, in need of creativity, in need of doing something in the world that is outside of the family. All these things, necessary elementary human needs are compromised. And when you see that happen, when you see many women, they fall into a depression because they get disconnected from the social world. They get disconnected from the work environment. They get disconnected from their own emotional health because it's now all about others, caring about others. And then I, I think the feminist critique makes so much sense. Uh, with, without that empathy, without seeing the life of a woman, I think it's, it's indeed judged as narcissistic and, and um, yeah, humanistic uh, and, and other kind of uh, tech words that, that are given. But it's yeah, this disconnectedness to be a mother, to become a mother. And of course, this is not in your control. Some of us can become mothers. I mean, we, we had a couple of miscarriages um, and many women, most women will have miscarriages, uh, even if they have a, you know, the longing for, for a child. But once the child is there, you are in a very different existential mode of living, I think, because now you're not living yourself anymore. Usually you're not, you cannot be the hero anymore. You're, you're neutered in, in a sense. You're now living the life of somebody else that you cannot even control. It's not something you can calculate. You cannot you know, do your education in such a way that you can produce this type of child in, in the end. You're always living in uncertainty and, and that re requires a robust a robust psyche, I think. Yes. What, 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 do you, what is your experience? Well, I, I completely agree. And I wanted to make sure, give a qualifier here, which perhaps I should have stated even earlier in our episode, that by no means are we presenting ourselves as experts as to what it means to be a woman. You know, mm -hmm. I think only women can talk about it and only mothers can really fully explain uh, what this means and the toil it has on them perhaps but even they might not even recognize it as a toil that's the thing right sometimes even looking from the outside you may you might see it more but all that we are doing is I, I believe is that we seek to express our appreciation and perhaps even a uh, not a small amount of remorse uh, as fathers as husbands that we are not pulling our weight as we should be pulling it that we take mm -hmm. it for granted because even in our egalitarian society and we know this, I mean, studies have shown this, when both parents are working and they're both preoccupied, women are still doing way more work in the home than what men are doing. So the, even, even in the most egalitarian societies, it's still not equal. And the, there's just an incredible burden placed on, on women. And for me, this is very important why now raises a broader question, right? In, in If really motherhood is important, let's say, uh, 
in this country, right, let's say on the right, which is a very kind of family-friendly, focused, you know, approach to politics. We defend family and God and country. Like, but how do you actually defend it? How do you actually argue for it if your maternity leave policies are very stingy, if you don't give compensatory salaries when people are away? You know, I know in some places, in some countries, it used to be in France, so I don't know if it's still the case, but I know that women used to be on maternity leaves for a very long time. In some mm -hmm. countries, mm -hmm. even a year and more, right? Yes. It used to be even to three years, I think, in some places. Very long. And not only that, but the government would pay someone to come to your home. I, I don't know how often, but to do some cooking, do some cleaning. So that is what how a society that values family actually looks like. So it's one thing to have it as a political program. It's another thing actually to enact social policies that show how mothers, when they're staying at home, how that profoundly matters, right? How they're not second rate, you know, the man is because he's bringing the salary, you know, he is kind of, no, 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 no. There has to be a different way of expressing appreciation, both individually, I mean, as husbands, as, as fathers, but also on a societal level, I think much more needs to be done there. Because I believe in the long run, the strengthening of family, and this is not some, I don't know, conservative, whatever, propaganda talk. The strengthening of family leads to strengthening of society, even though in, in an age where people are questioning the nuclear family, when people are questioning traditional family and having more kind of these rainbow families with, you know, multiple mothers or multiple fathers or whatever, right? Still, still, there's much to be argued on behalf of that. Yeah. In Austria, you have both maternal uh, as well as uh, fraternal leaves. Yeah. So paternal, you, and yeah. it's not mm -hmm. just it's just not just for a year. It's also that the state uh, finances education, so you can enroll for a year into a university for free and and take courses just to keep your mind stimulated um, and and support you in your interests. In the Netherlands, a similar uh, a similar program where mothers particularly and then family secondarily are, are supported. When you speak about family friendly, you know, it triggers quite some concerns within me because to me it seems almost this, at least in the environment we're living now here, right, in, in the US, this family friendly politics is often just throwing more oil into the fire of the performance requirements that we put on a woman. Yes. So mm -hmm. we, we have this kernel family, this nuclear family type of idea, which is a romantic idea, which is not older than about 200 years old, mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and with Rousseau, the idea of, of the woman kind of having this natural urge to be home and, and to stay. Basically, we locked now the, the woman into the walls of the private, private home, When you think about the majority of the population throughout history, as well in our last hundred years, children were not just raised by mom. Uh, they, they, they were raised by the village. And I think now having this focus on the family with it, it means like it's not the, the village anymore, it's the family. It's not the mothers and the grandmothers and the grandpas and, and the fathers. It's, it's the mother now. You put so much stress in a into a society that is already performance driven that is already progress driven i think i mean we have experiences when we came here when we come together you know the kids have friends and you meet with other mothers uh, who have kids and the talk quickly 
goes into comparative issues. Like, well, my girl is already reading. She she actually exactly. just won the library prize, <laughs> yes, yes. like a four-year-old kid. Right. And Karen and I were looking at other at each other and saying, wait, why does yeah. a kid have to read at that level? And why would you have to tell this? Yeah. This could be taken as this dysfunctional relationship. Right. Um, why not just bike and play and throw with dirt um, and not be concerned about academic progress? But right. there's so much, at least in the environment we, you know, we grew up is in, there's such a comparative need. Where am I? Where, where's my, my positioning in my performance as a mother, which is really poisoning. Yeah, it's definitely true. And this come, brings me back to this idea of well, a couple of things that I want to uh, speak to. The first is, is the last thing, which is this trope, right, of this uh, controlling, ambitious, competitive, and sometimes narcissistic mother, right? And perhaps the epitome of such a mother in, in the Western canon, right, in Western literature, uh, certainly, uh, at least one of them is Augustine's mother, Monica, right, who is so ambitious for her child, for Augustine, eventually, mm -hmm. you know, a very kind of Uh, suffocating, ambitious, you know, pushing him to succeed. And he eventually, he had an incredibly close relationship to her, especially later, once he converted. And we know this beautiful, almost mystical experience they have in, in Ostia as mother and son. In, when she, they meet in Italy and, and then she eventually dies. But she, he felt this suffocating thing. And I think there is this case, you know, what motherhood in a competitive society and fatherhood, not just motherhood, Right, where actually my child's success becomes an extension of my own narcissism and my own ambition. And that is really, I think, uh, that, that's the dark side of this kind of, what people are saying, it's, it's not just yeah. even helicopter parenting, right? It's, it's plow parenting. You, re mm -hmm. you remove all the obstacles for your child, so it's only that the child can succeed. Why? Is it like prop up your ego? You say it's love, but is it really about love? And then compared to what you said before, right, in a more like a, in older um, times and earlier times, you have the village, you have the grandmother, you have the mother, you have the aunts. It's a broader family. And not only you have like more people, but the way people spend time, like right now that you carry them from, you know, piano lessons to this, to ballet, to extra, you know, whatever curricular activities. I mean, when I, we didn't have any of that. I don't know how you had it as a child. I mean, you, you, in the morning you leave, you, you, you come, quickly pick up a sandwich, and then you're back at nine or 10 o'clock in the evening. No one knows where you are, right? Exactly. No, one, no one cares where you are. No one, I mean, we were stealing grapes, fighting, playing war games, all kinds of crazy things. And my mom, you know, okay, where are you? There wasn't this smothering thing, you know, there was yeah. more freedom. And I think there's some of these pathologies, I don't believe they're healthy, I don't believe they're good for kids. And I think that, so my whole point is, It's not just a nuclear family, but also, you know, the the kind of con uh, connected with how we live our lives in cities, in big cities, the fear of crime, the uh, ambitiousness of parents, kind of all of that working together to actually give less freedom to children. And I don't believe that's good. Yeah. And it's connected, you could say, with a, an earlier episode that we did on over-identification, namely that everything in the modern uh, society needs to, there's a longing to make everything conscious, right? to, to be aware. And the more you become aware and the more you make be conscious and the more you try to make decisions that are will 
geared, the more your responsibility also rises. So do you want to have a child? Yes, I want to have a child. Well, then it must be the best child. So these types of situations then um, contribute to these pathological behaviors where then, okay, when I want to have a child, then it means I need to self-sacrifice myself even more consciously. And the more you self-sacrifice yourself, supported by this in um, in quotation marks, family-friendly politics, the, the more you get involved into this, the more you lack a sense of meaning in your life, like, like your own private self-explorative and self-expressive meaning gets compromised. And so therefore, automatically, your need to projection is, is kind of the reflex. So you're now projecting what you don't have into, into the future child. And then, yeah, yeah, you have these unfortunate developments where helicopter moms or helicopter fathers uh, are being breeded. That's, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a, as a child, the only thing mom said was, okay, do your homework first and then you can play and you need to be back at 6 p.m. So that's what it, and we were in the woods. We were, yeah, what you're describing, we were in the fields, we were playing war games, we were beating each other up. We were trying to play tricks on neighbors. Um, we're trying to find dead animals and, and cut off, you know, their heads or, or their, uh, uh, the horns uh, of, of uh, deers that we found. And so, I mean, it was part of a, a important educational experience of us kids to not have the mother be present and to not have the father be present but to learn in this complex social environment of many kids plowing through the fields or through the woods yes that's for true yes yeah. i'm wondering you know what, what your thoughts might be you know if you on, on this one issue that i wanted to ask you on i think one of the most difficult things of being a parent is learning to letting go, right? Uh, the progressive loss of control, which is incredibly difficult uh, to give increasingly more space to your kids to make decisions, to be responsible for their decisions and the consequences of their decisions. And this progressive growth into insignificance, it's something, or, or less significance, let me put it that way, is something that many parents find incredibly difficult. But I just wanted to read, I mean, because just in, just in class, we had a reading just last week on on Monica, on Augustine's mother. Mm -hmm. And in this one book, uh, James K. Smith, he writes about this kind of this trope, right, of the controlling mother. And he says, you know, the mother must be overcome because her suffocating presence is the means of her manipulation. Her presence swells and overwhelms and inhales all the oxygen an independent self needs to breathe. She denies our autonomy with kisses. She steals our mm -hmm. self-reliance with hugs. She manages to make us hate ourselves for resenting her, which makes us all the more resentful. And then she, <laughs> she, he continues, he gives an illustration, you know, from Jonathan Franzen's novel, The Corrections. And then he continues, independence is the affront mothers cannot countenance. We saw and saw and saw on this umbilical hyphen cord, hyphen cum, hyphen tether, frantic to unhook, to achieve ourselves, our independence, only to feel the cord snap tout again, surprised to find it, it's reeling us in. <laughs> so, and wow. I wonder whether you think that this is a particular thing that mothers just have a harder time because of that deep connection they have, whether they have a harder time 
of letting go or whether this has to do more with personality. So it could be that it might be the father who is more controlling and has a harder, harder time of letting go. What was, what was your experience and what do you think is more generally true? Yeah, you know, Karen never wanted kids. So she, she is one of the f female uh, people who, who are, and they're, they're quite a bit around, that, that don't have this longing to become a mother. Hmm. Uh, and, and this also has contributed to another stress factor because everybody expects from a woman to become a mother. And th this has been a huge struggle for her. And I read quite a bit into, into it because I wanted to understand her better, which was the reason why she felt like she can marry me if I'm willing to live uh, as a husband of a wife that doesn't want kids. Um, hmm. So th therefore, I might not have the, <clears throat> the best example for the phenomenon you're, you're describing. But once we got kids, there is a strong responsibility that she felt. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a responsibility that I would say she feels for, for everything that she, t she makes a conscious decision for. I would say, though, that while there might be some psychic phenomena being triggered uh, between a mother and a child and those different types of responsibilities and emotional connections, that, that's for sure, are being triggered. I would say a component is not just personality and gender. It's also religion or faith or ideology or worldview. Mm -hmm. So to say, so from from very small on, we felt like these are our kids, but they are firstly they are God's kids, right, right? And and so a lot of the responsibility that a mother or a father feel was was already reduced because we felt like they are in the hands of God, and of course the hands of God show themselves in our hands, but but there's more than than just us. So the, this was one component. The second component was because of this type of theology of belief or worldview that we hold as Christians, time is also on our side. So that means our child does not need to perform at a certain level at a certain age, um, because time is ours, eternity is ours. So let this child enjoy the gift of life rather than the pressures of life. I mean, we will talk at a certain moment about Hartmut Rosa and resonance and, and these types of things. But it's such a relief if you know that you don't have to press eternity or compress eternity in a life of 70, 80, perhaps 90 years. Yes. So that, that takes a lot of stress out. And so we, we don't really have a strong sense of fear of failure. As long as we stick together and love each other and support each other in wherever we are, um, th that, is, that is enough. And as long as each of the member of the family has a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning in a sense of that their life is a gift, then everything is good. Then nothing more needs to needs to happen. So we don't have plans for our kids. Uh, you know, I, I always told uh, Karen, um, one of the most important things that we need to educate, that we need to inform our kids about is that they don't have, that they are, that we don't have any plans for them. Uh, so th th there's no thing that they have to satisfy. So I think worldview plays a huge role, or specific the way how you frame your faith plays a huge role in how you frame your own motherhood or your own fatherhood mm. and family. So I would say that that's the beauty of the mother I have experienced, and I wish that that uh, Karen and I are able to resemble that to a certain extent. I never felt that my mom expected something from me, that she was stressed by her motherhood. Mm. And, and I think that made me 
start my life in a such so much more comfortable way you saw my mom also not trying to expect expect uh, address expectations that others had so she was just doing her thing and she um, was doing what she was thinking was right whether that was the way how she had her hair you know she just had short hair because she just didn't like to mess with long hair so that, that was already not something that was part of the uh, general culture she ran the church as an elder well some people didn't like it well then that's just that's what the people voted i'm doing it that's what what we do um so countercultural in in a sense but not countercultural for the purpose of being countercultural but really i would say driven by the idea of that god gave her life as a gift and that's what she's doing with with her life there's no time pressure there's no performance pressure there's just the only responsibility is to live that that gift of life in a celebratory way uh, in in a celebrated she, i mean she was dan she would listen to music she would do n nonsense with us she would lose time so she would spoil time with us she would not use it effectively so even when she when, you know when they're visiting us my my parents they like to spoil just time forget the piano let's continue playing chess or so or, oh, or let's beautiful. do this puzzle or yeah. let's build this lego house or things like this so i think that's the the great blessing that i've received through, through my mm -hmm. mom well we are coming to the end of it um until what an episode it's a very very different episode on, than than what we usually do we're speaking about something we don't know much about just yes. an observation <laughs> so for all the moms out there you know we, we are in deep awe we we don't know what to say our in in dutch you say our mouth is full with teeth so yes. it's it, it's incomprehensible to me how they do that even on a physical level so yes. i'm exhausted after a day and if i don't get my seven hours of sleep i'm done karen sleeps five six hours since 12 years and she's still running i mean i have this um uh as and perhaps a famous poet uh, poem in the old testament proverbs 31 right that's the the woman who fears the lord mm -hmm. you can read it as anti-feminist text you can read it as a feminist text um but i just want to perhaps read a couple of verses and then you you can meditate on them or take them into your reflection on your own mothers and the mothers that um, we find in our environments. So this is how it goes. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and she buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bad coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in, in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. 
Ah. Well, thank you, Oliver, for ending with this beautiful poem. What a beautiful way to recognize our mothers and express our gratitude and awe for everything they've done in our lives. It was so great to be able to talk about this very dear topic and important topic. So thank you for that conversation. Thank you, Anto. Until next time, take care.